It's now time for the Grobstein and Schuster Express on 1252 Sports Chicago. All aboard! Here are your hosts, Les Grobstein and David Schuster. And good evening and welcome in once again to the latest edition of the Grobstein Schuster Express. It's brought to you by Nick and Ivy's Brewery in Lockport, located at 1026 South State Street, and much more from our sponsor later on in this podcast. And coming up in just a short bit, Les and I will be joined by a longtime friend and cohort in the business, Cheryl Ray Stout, who you can follow on Twitter at C Ray Stout. She works at WBEZ. She's a long time and a really good reporter, covers all the teams like Les and I have over all these years. And Les, I know you're looking up at the TV screen. You're following the Cubs game. We're live here on. And by the way, if uh, if anybody's listening to this live, and I'm sure a lot of people are, you can chime in here and we'll play some of the comments if they're kosher, so to speak, Les, right here on the screen. How you doing, buddy? Good. Uh, boy, the plate umpire in this game both ways. You know, actually, uh, Grandpa Ross he was kicked out of the game early on because of arguing balls and strikes, which I don't blame him, but there've been some bad calls against the Cardinals too, to be quite frank, but um, uh, four doubles so far by St. Louis in this game, and they have not been able to uh, convert any of They had the bases loaded in the bottom of the seventh with nobody out. And uh, then a ground ball was hit by Edmund and they got a force at the plate. Then Goldschmidt hit a, pop-up that was caught in foul territory. The runners obviously didn't budge. And then Arenado, um, he struck out. I want to talk about the Cubs and the White Sox, but less obviously the big story in sports today is Phil Mickelson, just short of 51 years old. He won the PGA today, Les. It really is a big story because he becomes the oldest winner uh, of a major ever at just short of 51 years old. The previous oldest winner was Julius Boros. You remember him, of course. I remember him. Julius Boros was a great putter, by the way. Yes, a great golfer. Um, and so really, it's an incredible story. To win the PGA, which is usually the strongest field, and I do believe they had 99 of the top 100 players in the world. And, you know, I've been following as, as a Phil Mickelson fan for a long, long time. And he, you know, came up short a lot. Uh, you know, he would play well in the first or second round of a tournament, but then would fold down the stretch in the third or fourth round or, or just plain not even make the cut. But for him, at the age of 51 less, it really is amazing. Golf is the hardest sport there is. Um, I know you don't play it, but you follow it, of course. And, and well, to be, to be I have played it. I have played it. I'm a good putter. I'm lousy at everything else. Getting to the green has always been my biggest issue. Well, then you should just stick to parking. With the windmills and the clown face. Well, when parking was around, that was pretty good. Of course, uh, uh, that was one of my favorite Adam Sandler. And I told him to his face, I said, oh, you know, in, in the movie uh, that uh, you're going to die, clown. And he just clobbers again, <laughs> knocks everything off. That was pretty cool. And, um, and he had a big grin on his face when I told him that. But uh, the bottom line is what uh, has been done by Lefty so far uh, through this tournament. And of course, he's got to win. It's the largest and the oldest anybody has ever won a major. 
That's incredible. Yeah, you, know, you know, it was really interesting, and I didn't know this until, you know, paying attention to the broadcast today. Did you ever see the movie The Legend of, of, of Bagger Vance? Or is that what it's Oh, called? yeah. Hell uh, yeah. Ba Bagger Vance. Bagger Vance. I was dyslexic. Bagger Vance, and that's the one with Will Smith. And it was really an underrated, really good movie. Some of that movie was filmed on the course that they played over the last four days for the PGA at Kiowa Island in South Carolina. Well, yeah, not, know, far from, not far from Savannah, Georgia, actually. Absolutely correct. So really, you know, that course now has gone from the legend of Bagger Vance to the legend of Phil Mickelson. And again, I can't understate how much of a sports story this was today. Uh, you know, he sort of uh, was under undertoning it after the fact. You know, he didn't say it was that big a deal. But in reality, it really, really is less because, again, to compete and he, he, he's also won a couple of times now on the senior circuit. But for him to compete against the young guys, the 20s and 30-year-old players, of which they're so damn good, and beat them, it really truly is an amazing story. He won by two strokes also. It wasn't one of those little sneaking type things. He won by two shots. And he pretty much was either in the lead or near the lead all weekend long. He didn't come out of nowhere here. Yeah, it was almost from uh, from start to finish. You know, he was in contention. I think he was one shot back after the first round, tied for the lead, I believe, after the second round. Had a couple of shots lead coming or one shot lead coming into today and lost the lead actually on the first hole when he bogeyed. And he was a little sketchy. And But then he chipped in, I believe it was on the fourth or fifth hole on the par three. And then he built up at one point less and built up a five shot lead, but then it got down to two and he wins by two. And so really, it, it really is an incredible story. And like I said, golf is just the hardest sport. I mean, every now and then I hit, have a good round or I hit some good shots, but to be consistent in that sport, I mean, even the best in the world, the Jack Nicholas's, even the Tiger Woods, you know, you can't win all the time. And it's just too damn hard. And there's too many damn good players. So, again, I say congratulations to Phil Mickelson. Job well done today. Yeah. And uh, a lot of people like Lefty, too. He's a very, very popular guy on the tour. Absolutely. And you know what? This is the year of the old guys because, you know, he won today, again, almost 51 years old, unheard of. Tom Brady wins, you know, however many Super Bowls. How many is that, Less I lost track. Seven Six. or eight? Six, I think. Six, okay, six, whatever it is. I mean, he wins the, the yeah, Super Bowl. I think it was six with the Patriots, and the seventh was the one he won with Tampa Bay. All right, well, anyway, he's 43 years old. Pretty unusual for a quarterback of that age to win a Super Bowl. And uh, so I, it's been the, I won't call it the year of the geriatric, but certainly the old guys so far in the calendar year have uh, commanded the uh, attention. He's not Bobby Jones, who, of course, was one of the two guys that uh, – we ended up seeing a three-way tie at the end of that uh, that match deal that they had uh, in that movie, The Legend of uh, Bag Bagger Vance. All right, we're going to bring in Cheryl Ray again from WBEZ, longtime cohort and reporter um, that has been in, in the field and in the press boxes over all these years. We'll bring her in in just a second. Cubs, though, let's... You know, they're playing right now in St. Louis. I believe it's scoreless now, what, in the eighth inning, if I'm not mistaken? One in the eighth, one out, nobody on for the Cards. All right, so after tonight's action, the Cubs will either be two or four games behind the Cardinals. And I'll say this, Les, you know, I think the Cubs have been better than I thought they would be. You know, most of their hitters have been at least, you know, decent. Um, obviously, Chris Bryant has been really good, and I still say he's going to be traded at the deadline. And their pitching overall has been good, and, and Kimbrell's been good out of the bullpen. So they've been better than I thought. And as far as the White Sox, after getting swept in New York today, their lead over second place Cleveland is down to a game and a half. I think they'll be okay. I mean, they ran into a really hot Yankee team that has now won six in a row. You know, But you know, when you lose 
two thirds of your outfield, which is basically your power source in, in uh, Jimenez and in Robert, you have to expect at some point the offense was going to tail off. Fortunately, the starting pitching has been good enough to carry them to this point less, but their bullpen is pretty sketchy also. Well, again, you go into Yankee Stadium, uh, a lot of crazy things can happen. Usually it's not very good, but the White Sox over the years have done very well when they've gone in. The last time I saw the Sox play in old Yankee Stadium, I saw them beat the daylights out of Roger Clemens. So I've seen them go in there uh, in the Bronx at 161st and River, and we know that that's a much different uh, ball park than the one they used to have, but it's still a bandbox. You hit it to right field and you hit hit the ball pretty good, it's going to probably leave the yard. All right, so one of our Facebook users who's following us says the Sox will go deep into the playoffs if they get the starting pitching consistently all season. And listen, Michael Kopech, maybe at some point, might be in the starting rotation. Time will tell on that one. Carlos Rodon less. I mean, he's an all-star as of today. And he you know what? Be. He might even be potentially the starting pitcher for the American League in the all-star game. Long time before that, you know, possibly can't occur. The starting pitching, I mean, Dylan Cease has been mostly up and down. When he's on, he's really good. Dallas Keuchel gave up a couple of earned runs early in today's game, but mostly he's been pretty good. And Lance Lynn has been just, a, you know, what everybody thought he would be. He's an innings eater, and he'll have a chance to beat one of his old teams, St. Louis, starting at uh, uh, guaranteed rate field tomorrow. So, again, the starting pitching less has been pretty good. The bullpen, though, like I said, has been pretty sketchy. Well, it has been, but, uh, you know, uh, what are they going to do down the road here? I mean, what's going to happen? Uh, Rodon, you mentioned, he's been as good as anybody. Uh, Giolito's last outing, he was fantastic. He was fabulous. We know that he's been up and down. He's been a little Dow Jonesy, but for the most part, he's really been good. Dow Jonesy, like the stock market? Is that what you're referring to? Exactly. Okay. Well, thankfully, the market has been pretty good this year. And, you know, a lot of us have reaped the benefits of that, but that's a story for another day. You know what I did the other day, Les? You know, Every now and then when I need a basketball fix, and everybody knows I'm a basketball junkie, I, I go to YouTube and I turn on Michael Jordan highlights from all the years, specifically even the early years when he was incredibly acrobatic and, and did things that were just not human. Not that he didn't do those same things at a later stage of his career, but especially early on. But the other day I decided, you know what, I'm going to take a look at Patrick Kane highlights. And, you know, as much as Michael Jordan wowed everybody with his highlights over all the years, Patrick Kane on the ice was um, is still, because I think he's still in his prime, just an absolute magician. I mean, you should try it sometime. I mean, you've seen him all firsthand, like much like I have, but sometimes just go on YouTube and just watch all the highlights from Patrick Kane. It's funny you mentioned it. I watched the uh, uh, last period of that uh, game in Philadelphia, actually in the, into the overtime where Kane scored the goal that nobody really saw go into the net. And I was also looking at uh, part of, I mean, I've got all 10 versions of The Last Dance recorded. And I looked at uh, edition number one today. So I, I looked at that and some of the things that Michael Jordan had said at that point. And uh, I have a lot of relatives, including my son, who is 40 years old now. And he still says, how does my, Michael knows you or something? I go, well, I kind of covered his whole career. But I, I, he, he knows me better than Patrick Kane even does. Yeah. Wait, you have a son that's 40 years old? You don't look like you're even 40 years old. He is 40. Scott is 40 now. And uh, his two sons, my two grandsons, um, they, the oldest one in particular is aware of what uh, Michael Jordan was to the city. The youngest one is starting to get uh, caught up to everything like that. 
What did you pro procreate when you were nine or ten? <laughs> Not quite that early, but uh, thank you for asking, as uh, Pat Hughes would have said. Okay. All right. Let's bring in Cheryl Ray, who uh, is a longtime friend and cohort, longtime reporter for WBEZ, um, worked with Chet Kopic back in, in the day over at uh, w the old WMAQ. So she's going to join us uh, as soon as she comes up on the screen. And there's Cheryl right now. Hey, looking, how are you? Looking, looking pretty as always. Oh. And, and for all those who are not following Cheryl on Twitter, you can. And her handle on Twitter is C Ray Stout, of course. And you can follow her, and she's a good follow, of course. And, and Cheryl, welcome into our podcast, Les and I. This is like old home week because the three of us have been, you know, confined for that ilk over all these years, and it's good to see you tonight. It's nice to see you guys. I feel like I'm in a press box with you guys. I need the popcorn. I need the hot dogs. I need the Diet Coke. Yes. Uh, well, the hot dogs usually at my place, at least, are better than the ones that they serve in all the press boxes. I can <laughs> promise you that. Anyway, Cheryl, you know, I was start, starting off this podcast with Les um, talking about Phil Mickelson, which I think is the story of the day. We'll talk about the Cubs, White Sox and everything else. But it truly is amazing what he did on the golf course today, knocking off everybody else in that field. The strongest field in golf annually is the PGA Championship. And really, you know, breaking an, a record, Julius Boros was the the oldest player previous at 48. And here's uh, Mickelson at just short of 51. It truly is an amazing story today. And to and to see the fans around him as yeah. he was going to 18, that, that, that says it all. I mean, people look at when Tiger did that. But to see Phil, especially during this pandemic, especially with all the problems that golf and every sports had to deal with, with the pandemic and be able to do that at that age, at that moment, it's it's truly a great feat. It's a great day for him. You know, it's interesting because he played with Brooks Kepka, who had won the PGA Championship in 2018 and 19. And he's one of the young rising stars in the game, obviously. And he's coming off a serious knee injury where I believe he had some kind of surgery not too long ago. And he got swallowed up by that crowd on the 18th hole. And actually, after the fact, he was pretty pissed off. I can use that language here on a podcast because he got jostled around and got hit in that knee. He was not a happy camper after the fact. I'm just wondering if the course didn't know what to do, if security didn't know what to do, because that's their job. And right. they probably weren't expecting it. Right. But they it, wasn't like it, was, it wasn't like it was real close. I mean, uh, Lefty won the thing by two shots. Yeah, Les, I, I hate to tell you, but two shots in golf is not that much. <laughs> but it's, it's twice as much as one. You know what, Les, I never knew that you were a math major until right now. <laughs> two is twice as much as one. Thank you for that for that scoop. <laughs> hey, uh, Cheryl, you, you know, we've talked about all these things over the years, but now that, you know, we're together here on this podcast, what are some of the most uh, treasured memories? You know, Les and I talk about this all the time, and we have a walk down memory lane segment that you're more than welcome to stick around with later on in in this podcast, and also stump the grabber with that. That's that's award winning, by the way. But uh, what are some of your treasured memories over all these years? Well, you know, covering all the championships has been one of my favorite things to ever do. But there's these special moments you have. Um, for me, I'll give you one that there's a family, it's kind of a family type thing. In 2005, when the White Sox won, a dear friend of mine, Nick Pomero, who is a blind judge from Rolling Meadows, big Sox fan, huge Sox fan. And so I go, you know, and, and after I finished my work and you know, I did call him up 
and I had an early flight the next day. And so I went into the locker room and I picked something up because I had to bring back something. You know, I used to bring back, you know, like uh, programs or scorecards, stuff like that. So I go to his house the next day and I said, Nick, open up your hand. I open up his hand. I put it in his hand and he smells it. And he says, is this what I think it is? I go, yeah, it was a cork stopper from wow. one of the champagne bottles. And, you know, for anybody else, it doesn't matter. But for someone that's blind, he could feel it. He could smell it. So those type of moments, um, being able to, to see Michael Jordan do everything that he did. Uh, uh, Walter Payton. There's so many things like that. But, I, you know, I've been really, we've all been fortunate. The three of us have been very fortunate at see and being in a defense. But being able to sit down with Martina Navratilova to do an interview. One of my favorite interviews with Arthur Ashe, sitting down with him for 45 minutes. And, you know, you're sitting there with something that's so brilliant and you're trying to match him. And it's really hard when he's that, that smart. But people like that, that I get to talk to, this my thing. I like to talk to people. I like to be at the events. I like, you know, I just love the whole ambiance of being at winning baseball, hockey, basketball, being at the Bears when they won the Super Bowl. I mean, those are moments you can't forget. Absolutely. And, you know, yes, I mean, we've all been very fortunate. Uh, I, I've covered 12 championships. I know you've covered the same 12. Les will throw in a couple more from the same. So he's got us both beat, I do believe. But, you know, it's not only covering, you know, the championships, but it's also dealing with a lot of nice people over the years. And that list is bigger and longer than the a-holes. But there's, there's a long list of that, too. So which are some of the guys <laughs> yes. that have stood out both positively and conversely, negatively to you over the years. Hmm, I got to be very careful, I think. <laughs> um, yeah, be careful. That's okay. <laughs> Luol Deng, one of my absolute favorites that people don't, if they get to know him, you, you'd you really like him a lot. Um, Jim Harbaugh is the one that opened the door for me to get in the Bears locker room when they wouldn't allow women in, in during the week. I was the first one to go in there and it was Jim Harbaugh. People wouldn't know that. Uh, there's people like Aaron Rowan, with the 05 White Sox, great dude. Um, you talk about anybody, um, you know, as far as the, the Cubs, you know, there's there's you know, Andre Dawson, you know, at the one of the media socials when a fan interrupted an interview I was doing with him, he, you know, he signed it and he goes, this was supposed to be for you guys, you know, and I'm like, oh, yeah, he, he, he understood it. But as far as the bad dudes, um, let's say some of those guys from the 85 team that when I was going in the locker room the first time on a, on a Wednesday, that some of them went up to me and screamed and yelled and spit at me. Yes. And I, you know, you just don't, for, you know, that that's in my, in my gut. Um, Albert Bell, a complete bona fide ass. Just. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think you cleaned that up. You cleaned that up big time. Yes. But, you know, those type of guys. My first time going into a locker room with the Orlando Magic to do pregame because I was part of the broadcast for MH Radio, Shaquille O'Neal was a big turd. Just a big turd. You know? So I've had my instances with players like that. There's some that are local. They would rather not say just yet. But you you got along okay with right. Kobe Bryant, didn't you? I didn't have any problem with Kobe, but I, I you know what I, but I still will not forget there was a situation with him that I won't, you know, with the rape case. It still bothers me to this day. Of course, of course. 
Well, and Cheryl, you know, you don't have to name names here, but I've seen some of the players back in the day, we're, we're going back 30 plus years, maybe with some of these people that when you first started coming into baseball clubhouses that would not give you the time of day and, and treated you shabbily. I guess that's a, a polite way of putting it. Um, and, and, you know, they basically, they didn't want any females in the clubhouse or in the locker rooms. So again, you don't have to name names, but I'm sure you, you felt that unfortunately back in those days and maybe still do to a degree. Well, you know, it, it, it was kind of rough going into baseball because at the time when I went in, in the early eighties, they were not, the players came mostly straight from high school going into the minor leagues. There wasn't as many colleges as it eventually became. So they didn't have women in high school covering them. And so by the time they came up, they didn't. And there was one uh, Chicago Cub that used to say and a lot of things to me. And, and it was very, you know, disturbing. And I didn't know who it was. I would hear it as I was, you know, as I walked past. And a former White Sox player that got traded to the Cubs told me who it was. And this guy's in the Hall of Fame. And I won't forget that. <laughs> I won't forget that because that was really difficult to take. But I'm going to mention somebody that actually helped me. And that was Tony LaRusso. He was the first manager I dealt with. And I got assigned to cover the White Sox. And it was the first time I was going into the locker room. And Tony took me to the security guards and had them. Look at because at that time, remember, we didn't have our pictures on the on our credential, we just had our names. And he told them not to hassle me because that was actually the first line of, of where I would get hassled was by the security guards and then by players. You know, it's media, interesting. I was gonna say, media relations people, you got along great, but one guy, and I won't mention his name, but uh, the guy whose initials were DA, uh, I had my issues with him too, and uh, wasn't the nicest guy in the world that uh, you ever dealt with either. And yeah. You know about. Yeah. He actually, I had trouble with him at a college that he was with too. <laughs> uh, the, the thing is a lot of, a lot of times you have layers of people that don't know what you do or don't understand what you do. But when you're a woman, you know, they, they, this old fashioned ideas that weren't allowed. And to, to be honest with you, it, there was a lot of print media I had issues with too. Well, a lot of that had to do with a lot of the print media, especially the older ones. They didn't like anybody that was A, younger, or B, with microphones in their hand. Uh, I had mentioned because the White Sox have been in New York uh, and playing the Yankees and all. There were two people who are both no, no longer alive, but they were two of the biggest turkeys I've ever dealt with. One was Dick Young and the other was Jack Lang. And Jack Lang, I mean, he even appeared in the uh, movie uh, – uh, the movie The Odd Couple, they showed him in the press box and stuff like that. But these are two people that despised media people that uh, had microphones in their hand. They didn't like electronic media. And I don't think they liked uh, women in, in there either at that point. Well, I'll tell you something what happened with me at Wrigley Field when the city of Chicago banned smoking in the, you know, all of parks and stuff like that. I don't know if you guys remember that. And I'm sitting there in the press box. It was only me and Sharon Panazzo, the only two females in the in, in the press box. And the old timers, and I love them dearly, they they stood around me. They came around me as I was sitting in the press box saying, "It's you're the reason why we can't smoke our cigars. You're the reason why we can't smoke cigarettes because what, we allowed women in the press box. Well, of course, we all it, remember. It, 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 that's absolutely, uh, that, that's pathetic. That's horrible. As, and I will say that uh, right off the bat. And um, as you well know, both of you know, Sharon Panazzo, I consider a good friend to this day. And 
talked to her as recently as about a week ago. And of course, we all remember when Jerome Holtzman tried to stand up for the old guard and smoking cigars in the press box and him and, and him and Sharon. Yeah, that, that's who you're referring to. But that's a story for another day. Um, it, it's also interesting, uh, Cheryl, because you mentioned Tony La Russa. He, of course, is the current manager of the White Sox. He was my first manager when I broke in into broadcasting, I believe for, for you as well, Cheryl. Yes. Less you might have predated him. I'm, I'm not really sure. I definitely predated him. I was there when uh, uh, there, there were some other managers with the White Sox and with the Cubs that definitely predated Tony. And we all know that, um, for example, Don Kessinger, he was the uh, player, player manager head. prior to Tony. Right. Right. Anyway, so Tony was always, you know, and I, I know I've seen his good side also, Cheryl, don't get me wrong, but Tony has also always been sort of hard boiled for lack of a better term. And he would, you know, sort of challenge you uh, if you asked a question he didn't like or, you know, one that he didn't think was good enough, so to speak, you know, he would sort of call you on the carpet. But I will say this, Tony gave me the greatest interview of any person I've ever dealt with in all of sports. Of course, it had nothing to do with sports. It was about animal uh, animal rights, of which he's huge on. Yes. So Tony's a, an interesting character, but let me ask you, because obviously it was in the news over the last couple of weeks, you know, the him and, and the Mercedes thing. You know, what were your views on that? And, and do you think Tony, unfortunately, threw gas on the fire by even bringing it up when he didn't even have to? You know, I was on those Zoom calls, and, and it was kind of interesting being on. I, I think... I, th I think Tony really felt the wrath of what social media can provide for him. Right. And I don't, I don't think he, he knew the parameters that could happen when you are in that bowl and being seen. And I think when he, I, I asked him about, actually before the game, I asked him if uh, he thought that Minnesota was going to retaliate and he didn't think so, but you know, and then the retaliation happens. And then he said, you know, he was didn't blame Minnesota for doing it. You know, I think there was things that he handled wrong because what I was surprised at, and you guys both have seen Tony, known Tony, I've never seen him throw a player of his own under the bus ever, 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 ever. So I was surprised by that. Um, but when you talked, and I asked Lucas Giolito, was there any more negative, was there any negativity in that? locker room. And he said, no, that was done with Tim Anderson, the same answer. The The problem is, is that the players thought it was over with Tony thought it was over with the outside media didn't think it was over with. And that's why it became a problem. This whole thing about unwritten rules is just BS. Well, and, but, but the fear here with Tony, and it was the fear coming into the season, he, he being of the generation that he is and the players, right. you know, some of them as much as 50 years younger or more than that, you know, that they just would not see eye to eye and a lot of stuff. And unfortunately, on this one subject, it, it came to bear that, you know, he's old school, they're of the new generation, yada, yada, yada. Um, you know, I've always believed that if a team wins, who cares about anything else? But if they don't win... And, you know, they lost three games in the last three days, but that's okay. They, you know, they'll come home and they'll probably, you know, win the couple of series at home. But the, the question is, you know, because of the two different generations, him and them, can this be a reoccurring problem? It can be. It can be. And I think this is where your media relations people have to be strong and, under, you know, and really start to guide him over this. I'm sorry. That's, that's, that's what it is. Because – if you're at his age, 76 years old, 
he probably doesn't, you know, I know he has a Twitter account, but does he really look at Twitter? Does he look at probably, social? Probably doesn't use it. Probably doesn't use it. Right. But the players do. And so that's where that, if a lot of, a lot of the feelings that because that's what happened when your main had the home run and Tim Anderson, he put something on social media and, you know, blah, blah, blah. You have all that. And I think it's up to them. And I also think Tony's got to learn that, you know what, y you got to listen to your players on this stuff. You really have to listen to your players because you don't want to lose that locker room. They right now, when you don't have the big stars, you don't have Aloy, you don't have Louis, Louis, uh, Robert, um, you got to make sure that locker room stays tight. Yeah. Look, let me ask both of you on, on this uh, subject. Sports has a habit of much like life. There's always changes. Baseball has, unfortunately, in my opinion, had some rule changes, and I know Les will agree with me on this. I don't like the seven-inning games, even though I'm the biggest proponent of hating. You know this, Cheryl, long, extra-inning <laughs> games. So it's almost like, are you kidding? Of all people, you don't like seven-inning games? No, I don't. Um, I also don't like a stupid rule of starting, you know, the 10th inning with a runner on second base. It's just idiotic. There's more rule changes that are in the pipeline for major leagues that they're trying out in the minor leagues. I just don't like them bastardizing the game. Although I think I understand why they're trying to do this. I just don't like it, period. And now basketball is really going to make some changes. They've already had the play-in, quote-unquote, games. They're talking about a midseason tournament upcoming, potentially, if they get you know uh, the okay from the players and some of the owners. Hey, what, is, what good is that going to do? I mean, they, 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 I don't know. Tournament. It's ridiculous. Money, you know, it's, well, it's, money. It's, and, and Cheryl's 100% correct. It's Fans aren't going to buy money. into it, is my prediction. Uh, well, we'll see. They're also talking about... This will be interesting. A four-point field goal. I mean, I I was against the three-point field goal. I mean, Steph Curry is probably saying, "Pass that rule. Give me the four-pointer. I'm gonna I'm gonna shoot from half court all the time." <laughs> Trey Young, like yeah, Trey Young tonight. also. By the way, Trey Young hit the game-winning shot tonight to beat the Knicks in Game One. Of that's gonna be a good series, by the way. But you know, are you for some of these changes in all these sports, Cheryl? Is that just the way it is, or am I being too stodgy here by saying I don't like a lot of them? I'm. I don't mind the seventh inning doubleheader. I know. I, I'm. I. I just think that the bullpens are getting taxed more and more and more. I think this is one way to do it. I think if you if if you keep if you leave it at nine nine innings, I think you should have more players on your roster. I think there has to be some sort of yeah. Compromise. They're going to spend, uh, like you said, they're going to spend more bucks, and uh, they don't want to do that. Well, I mean, this is something that the players union can bargain with. I do, I do think there should be a DH in the National League. I know you're going to hate that, Les. No way, no way. They're going to do it, but I'm, I'll never, ever, ever agree with that. Well, Justin Steele is the reason why he's on the IL is because he was, you know, he got hurt running the bases. So, well, let me ask Les and and you, Cheryl. Also, they're talking about because. There's been so many strikeouts, and, and a lot of the run production is down. They're talking about uh, – Too many no-hitters, too. Moving oh, the mound yeah. back. They're That's pushing true. the mound back a foot or two, lowering the mound by a few inches. I mean, we all know what happened, you know, when they did this last time around. I think it was – what was it, Les, 68? 68. Uh, everything was – by 69, they changed it. Okay. Do, do you guys like that idea? Or, again, am I just being too stodgy and saying don't touch it? No, it's trash. It's, well, he, he, it's, it's, as, it's as bad as all the other Rob Manfred rules here. I don't like any of them. They're like you said, they're bastardizing the rules. They're 
trying to reinvent the game and they're doing a miserable, stinking job of it, in my opinion. Here's one of the problems. The shift has caused a lot of problems. And, and, and the thing is about baseball, as I've always felt, is that when you have something that is dominant in the game, you learn to have an adjustment. You learn how to hit the other way. That's what you see. Instead of having launch angles, you know, hitting, you know, everything is swing up. You're not you're not really using the plate well enough. So I really think that that has to be they have to consider not having the shift on. You can thank thing. Theo Epstein and Billy Bean and people like that for some of that stuff. But and but Theo Epstein is, is on the committee that's looking at changing that too. We'll no, see. Theo Epstein is definitely behind at least a lot of the potential upcoming changes. And you know, listen, in one of the minor leagues, I think it's the Pioneer League, they're deciding games on a home run hitting contest. I mean, you know, it's and, but listen, we all thought the shootout was stupid when it first started. But it's it is stupid. It's dumbass and three on three and overtime. At least in the Stanley Cup playoffs, they're playing five on five, and they will play overtime till somebody scores a goal. And that's fine for the playoffs. But I think for a regular season, I think it's fine to have the three on three and the shootout. I think you need to have those games end it. Right. No, and, it causes a lot of teams that aren't as good as that uh, that should be in the playoffs. They're going to just miss it out. Now again. Uh, I know the Blackhawks are bad with three on three, but it doesn't. I, I still think that it's not hockey. Uh, I don't like what they're doing in hockey. I don't like uh, the way the NBA. I've always been an NBA fan for a long, long time. I'm not any longer. Problem is, they. Uh, it's it's not going to change anytime soon because all the things that I don't like, I am going to lose. I know that they're going to they're going to make all these changes. They're going to add the DH permanently, which I'm not a big fan of. I think we are all stodgy, and I'll I'll raise my hand to say I'm the first and you know foremost one probably. But you know, again, life is all about change, so I guess you just have to expect it. Before we go to a um, a, a quick word from our sponsor, Cheryl, I want to ask you because you're a longtime Bulls, uh, not only reporter but fan of the game as well. The Bulls made a bold, big move, obviously at the trading deadline. They traded a couple of players, which I didn't really have a problem with, but unfortunately, they also packaged in couple of first round picks to Orlando to get Vucevic, an all-star center. I thought it was a gamble worth taking personally. Um, it didn't pan out this season, but it potentially will hopefully pan out down the road. What were your thoughts on that? I didn't mind the trade because I thought it would work, but the problem was is COVID really hurt them when you lose Zach Levine for three weeks. You know, so you and, and also they only had one practice after the trade. So I think that that would really hurt what you could see with this team. Um, when you, I always hate giving up first round draft picks. That's always something that gets my gut. And the fact that they should have tried to lose that last game because their percentages to get in the top four went from 26 to 20%, which, you know, they would have kept, they could keep that pick if they get the top four. And that bothered me in, in that regard. However, I like what Billy Donovan has done. I think because the, the fact is he had a change in strategy from what the team he had at the beginning of the season to the team he had after the trade. And I think there was things that were working well. Um, I think they have a lot of work to do as far as what they could do with point guard because Kobe, Kobe White is a is not a point guard. They've got to get somebody to facilitate the ball for them. Uh, Zach Levine can, can do some of that, but I think you have to have a pure point guard in order for this team to succeed. I think I just, Kobe White could be the next Ben Gordon, and that's fine. Ben Gordon wasn't a point guard either. He came off the bench, and look what he did for them uh, for a while. Yeah, and I think guys, he should come off the bench. 
those guys are worth their weight in gold. I mean, Jamal Crawford, uh, back in the day, Vinnie Johnson, known as the microwave, Lou Williams, yada, yada, yada. So, yeah, I agree with both of you on that. All right, um, Cheryl, do you want to stick around for our walk down memory lane segment? And sure. start okay, yes. great. Alan's back in the studio. So we're going to play a little word from our sponsor, uh, Nick and Ivy's in Lockport. Here's our sponsor. Hello, this is Paul from Nick and Ivy Brewing Company. We are located at 1026 South State Street in historic downtown Lockport, Illinois. We are very excited to be partnering up with the Fat Mike Chicago Sports Show as well as the 1252 brand because we are one of the few Chicagoland breweries that embrace sports and sports culture. Come in for a fresh brewed beer made right here in Lockport while catching the game of your favorite team. Stay for the live music that we have booked every weekend or just come for a cozy atmosphere to enjoy a good conversation with a friend, loved one, or complete stranger. Nick and Ivy makes you feel right at home no matter what the occasion is. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook by searching for Nick and Ivy Brewing Company. Visit our website for our up-to-date tap list or to go shopping on our online store at nickivybrewing.com. That's N-I-K-I-V-Y brewing.com. Come in today for a fresh brewed beer born and raised in Lockport, Illinois. And I've been out there, and let me tell you, the brewery that they have there is second to none. If you're a beer drinker, you got to go out there. I'll just leave it at that. All right, welcome back to the Grabstein Schuster Express. I'm David Schuster. The gentleman to my right on the screen here is Les Grabstein. And the person um, below us here on the screen who is definitely raising the IQ quotient of, of this podcast <laughs> is Cheryl Ray, who is a longtime reporter and friend of ours from WBEZ. And you can follow her on Twitter at Stout. Cheryl, I'm, I'm going to lead off our um, our walk down memory lane segment. And because the three of us have put in so many years into this uh, broadcasting field, you know, and you talk about covering the championships, that's where a lot of the great memories are. So I'll lead off with one. And I'm going to, unless it was right by me for both these two, it was the 2010 Stanley Cup Finals and the 2013 when they won on the road, first in Philadelphia, and then they won uh, in Boston. And ironically, they won all three cups in game six. So I guess six was the magic number, six, six, six. You put it together. That was for the Bulls, too, except for the first one against the Lakers. That is a good point, by the way. Anyway, um, in 2010, Les and I were sitting, I don't know, somewhere up on the on the ceiling, I'm sure, uh, in, in the Philly. What was the name of that building, Les? I forget. It was called Wachovia Center then. Now it's called Wells Fargo Center because – uh, Wachovia Bank was bought out by Wells Fargo. That's how you had the name change. Okay. Anyway, it looks like the Hawks are going to win in regulation, but then Philadelphia scores a goal with about four minutes to go. I think Hartnell scored that goal, if I remember correctly. And so they go overtime. Now, if the Hawks win, they win the Stanley Cup. And, you know, we're, we're going to, we're told we're going to go on the ice. That would have been a first for me at that point. Turned out to be one of three times, but they, they brought us down into the hallway. And we're standing in the hallway. We yep. can't see anything. So, I mean, no one saw the Patrick Kane goal, but we didn't see it either. Because I was upstairs and I didn't see it either. I, I was, was on the Matt. floor with you. I was the same area as you as David. I was with Matt Spiegel and uh, Dan McNeil. And uh, we, we were up there. And as we were waiting to take the elevator down, McNeil looks at me like stunned. He goes, they just won the Stanley Cup. I'm going, yeah, it's been 49 years. And I was uh, nine years old when they last, last had won it, and I was watching it on TV. Lloyd Pettit was doing color with Johnny Gottsley, the play-by-play -play announcer in those days. 
told you, Cheryl, that Les would give us a history lesson. I told you. <laughs> anyway, so we're standing in the hallway and we're watching the game on a little black and white TV that one of the camera guys is, you know, so they scored the goal. We're, we're brought over to the ice. We have to wait for them to celebrate for about 10 minutes. And then we let, you know, and I was lucky that I, I, I think I interviewed just about every player and I got them all on live on radio, yada, yada, yada. Cool experience. And I thought to myself, wow, this is fun. Let's do it again. Fast forward three years, we're in Boston. Um, it's game six. It was fun being in Boston for a litany of reasons. Anyway, they're trailing two to one with a couple of minutes to go. So, all right, we're going to cover the losing locker room in this instance. So they bring us downstairs and we're sitting outside the Hawks locker room at the time and, you know, expecting to go in there. But once again, a camera guy's got a little black and white TV and uh, first it was Bickle who scored it, I believe it was 1844. And then 17 seconds later at 1901, it was the Rats, Dave Boland. So once again. The, the killer bees, the two killer bees. Correct. Once again, the two game-winning goals, the tying and game-winning goal, I didn't see any of those goals either. Yeah, and a little 13-inch black and white TV. They bring us out there and we go on the ice, yada, yada, yada. So it's really interesting. I mean, there's always pros and cons to everything, as I always say. But we didn't get to see – I didn't get to see those goals. But we, we, we were part I of the goals. Both, both. <laughs> Luckily, the goal judge – and by the way, uh, in the Stanley Cup playoffs, the goal judges are neutral. They bring them in from other cities. Luckily, they did see them. But they never had the goal judges laid on in Philadelphia on Patrick Kane's game winner. Then how, how cool was that for the six games at the United Center when they finally got a chance to win it at home – and uh, Duncan Keith scored the tie-breaking goal, making it one to nothing. And then Patrick Kane was able to, he had a basically empty net to slap it. And as the goalie was, uh, Bishop was out of the net and that made it two nothing. And then it was a case, could Bishop just get himself the shutout? Uh, I should say, could Corey Crawford get the shutout? And Bishop was pulled and they couldn't get a goal. And that was a pretty exciting night there. And uh, what a great night for the fans. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, 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 I enjoy when it happens at home in a lot of ways, but I enjoy it more on the road. The reason why I enjoy it on the road, like it was in Boston and Philadelphia, like you guys were, was that the players know who you are and the other people that are around, they don't know. And so you could get a lot of one-on-ones. When you are at home, you have all the news crews that are there too. So you, you have more local media and it kind of gets pretty cumbersome to get around everybody. But to me, when you're on the road, that's the best. I'm sorry. I'm very selfish. I like it like that. And Three of the Bulls championships were on the road, as we know. One was at Chicago Stadium against Portland, and two of them were at the United Center when uh, Kerr hit the winning shot. And, of course, when they clinched against uh, uh, Seattle after that fantastic season that they had had. But, um, Cheryl, you and I will never forget uh, the last Detroit. time yeah, in, uh, in Salt Lake City where oh, Jordan yeah. hit the shot. And uh, the way we got home after that whole situation, too. And you didn't even have a flight. Did you see that? That's from that game, remember? Oh, yeah. That's oh, the yeah. banner. I got to tell you this story, David. It was, it was packed up. You know, I got some of the, the basket, you know, the netting from Jordan's last shot. We both did. Out. And I'm walking out, and the workers in Utah were kind of pissed off, you know. And they're taking down the banners. I'm going, hey. Can you give me one of those? I'll give you 10 bucks. And he goes, sure. I go, give me two and I'll give you 20. So he gave me that banner and you got the other one less. And we had the, uh, uh, Dan Roan was able to get upstairs on the step letter and cut down the, the net. 
and uh, we were able to get that as well. You did not have a flight the next day, but somehow uh, they not only gave me a flight, they gave you a flight, and we were able to fly. Uh, we had to connect uh, through Denver, but then we got back to Chicago, and uh, nobody else first could class. get a flight. We went first class. <laughs> not, not only that, we got a little a bonus. Little uh, They gave us a little uh, show, yeah. a, yeah. uh, airfare for future usage. The whole thing was pretty cool, and uh, uh, I was wearing the championship shirt that I got from John Ligmanowski, and uh, I'm wearing it around the airport there. And you were with me at the time. The people looking at me like, how dare you? How dare you wear that thing? They were not very happy. Cheryl, that, that banner behind you, it's worth a pretty penny to a lot of people. I'm letting you know that. <laughs> we could talk some money. <laughs> yeah. Let, Les will know that. Anyway, all right, uh, you want to throw any other memories before we go into Stump the Grabber? Anything that stands out? I mean, we could do this all night, but anything that really stands out? I think for me, it was when the Cubs won. And like what you said, you have to be ready to go in the locker room. And the Cubs were ahead. And then, you know, after the rain delay, you go downstairs. And then Cleveland ties it up. We kept and going back and forth. And the champagne was behind the Cubs. And then the it was going back and forth. I'm standing next to Al Roker, who's getting ready. And we're like, wow, this is this is getting wild watching the, you know, what, what the people behind the scenes are trying to figure out where do we put the champagne? Where do you put the champions hats and stuff like that? That to me, is, those behind the scene things, like you're talking about, like what we had to go through in Philadelphia and Boston, those are always priceless. The other one was going into the locker room after the Bears won the Super Bowl when we had a real long wait to get in that locker room. And then once we went in, it was weird. It was kind of a tomb. They weren't allowed to have any alcohol. Walter was upset in the corner. Michael McCaskey is holding the trophy. And then Steve Kazer was going to get killed by Buddy Ryan. <laughs> so it was, it was crazy. You know, it, it's interesting talking about in 16 when the Cubs won. And, yeah, we were down in the bowels of the stadium there. And we went down in the sixth inning because we wanted to get our place to get into because the Cubs had a pretty decent lead at that point. And, like you said, the lead jockeyed back and forth. And the champagne kept going in and out. And those guys from Major League Baseball, they looked like the Orkin team, the pest control people, <laughs> running all over the place, not knowing where to go. And then when we finally got in there, it was an absolute zoo, of yeah. course. And once again, Cheryl, I didn't see the game-winning hit by Zobrist, only because we were underneath in the stadium. So with the naked eye, you know, sometimes uh, I've made a point out of always recording everything so I can really feel what a fan feels because that's we're sort of removed from that. Yeah, and one of the players, when they opened up the champagne bottle, the cork landed right in my stomach. I feel like <laughs> I had quite the jolt that night. <laughs> And, and, you know, I hate to say it, and Les can really identify with this as well. Sometimes there's some pushing and shoving and little sharp elbows and everything else, you know. And listen, everybody's got a job to do, but you try really hard. You talk about what, what happened on the golf course today on that 18th hole. That's how it's like sometimes in locker rooms and clubhouses. It's a scrum. And, and you know, and I didn't appreciate that there were some people that got in that locker room like Bill Murray. I know everyone loves him, but the fact that he was trying to make Kelly crow drink champagne on, on air. There was some real, that was uncomfortable. It's very uncomfortable, but you know, there's nothing more exciting actually when people start leaving and then you could have your quiet time to do your one-on-ones to talk to the players. And again, when it's on the road, they have, they're much more encompassing to you if they know you. 
I know that when we went into the locker room in uh, New Orleans after they won 46 to 10, what was really cool about that was the first person that came up to me inside there was Ed McCaskey, uh, rest his soul. And he came up to me and said, uh, just wanted to thank you for uh, telling the truth about everything, uh, you know, with John, the Jim McMahon lies that were made by Buddy DiLiberto all that week, supposedly an interview with myself and Fred Winston, which was a complete lie. And, um, you know, to this day, Jim McMahon uh, and rest his soul. Uh, no, Jim is fine, but rest of the soul of Ed McCaskey. Uh, Jim McMahon to this day will still thank me for uh, quote unquote saving his life. I don't think I saved his life, but if they want to give me credit for it, that's fine. And you know, Cheryl, it, it's interesting. And you know, I'm thinking about when the Sox won in 05, and I, we're, I think we're all in Houston. I know I was. Yeah, anyway, was. Um, the first person when the Sox won in each series in Boston and Anaheim and then Houston, the first person that I interviewed each time because we were sort of kept out of the clubhouse initially when they won because they were doing champagne and everything. First person I interviewed, and he was so happy, was the late Eddie Einhorn. And yes. he, was, he was such a good person. You know, there, there was a miss misconception of Eddie Einhorn, but deep down, he was a really nice man. He bailed us out so many times when uh, we couldn't get interviews at some of the news comments, and he would always be there to bail us out. And uh, yeah, the first person at the White Sox after they clinched in Houston that I talked to was Frank Thomas, kind of a forgotten guy because he was on the disabled list for half the season, but he was very good the first half of the year. And I went up to him, I said, I know you wish you could have played, but this has a lot to do with you as it does anybody else. And he appreciated me coming up to him, but being able to go up to big Frank, that was pretty cool. Let me tell you something about Eddie Einhorn. I loved Eddie Einhorn. He was very, very supportive for me. He really was. When I was doing Chet's last show that he was ever going to do, we did at Lou Malnati's and I wanted Eddie Einhorn to be one of his last guests. His last show, Eddie Einhorn actually had the plane, a commercial plane, wait for him to do the interview so he did it live for us. And and so he could be on Chet's last show at MAQ. So Eddie would do things like that. He was very, very generous. He I think he had a I think he got a bad rap in this town. And and it's unfortunate because he's one of the reasons why the NC2A is real is where it's at. I mean, there's a lot of things he did. Uh cable television carrying uh sports is all him. Yeah. That Astrodome game between Houston and UCLA, that was his idea. And that was the largest crowd ever to watch a basketball game going into that. And then uh, they had a rematch in the NCAA tournament. UCLA walloped them. But uh, that was a great game. And uh, Houston ended up pulling an upset. And that was all the ingenious of Eddie Einhorn for coming up with that idea. It was right, fun yeah. during the winter, winter meetings. I, I sat between him and Jerry at a dinner they they had the reporters go out to dinner oh my god but those two were the funniest dudes ever yeah they were like the bowery boys the old bowery boys you know from brooklyn of course <laughs> absolutely all right we have one last segment here before we get out of here cheryl again appreciate you joining us again by the way the cubs have gone ahead two to nothing a two-run homer by baez in the top half of the 10th inning with a runner at second base of course and then he had a what looked like it was gonna be a high fly ball to center but it carried out over the center field fence and uh, the Cubs are still hitting in the 10th now leading two to nothing. You know, and I said this at the beginning, Cheryl, we'll get ready to ready for stump the grabber here in just a second. The Cubs are playing better baseball than I thought going into this season. I really thought they would fall off a cliff here, but they're hanging around, which is going to make really interesting. What happens at that trading deadline? Are they going to pull, you know, um, like what, what Reinsdorf did that one year when they were only three and a half out and trade people. 
you know, or, or are they going to try and go for it? It'll be really interesting. Anyway, it's time now for Stump the Grobber. What was that? What? Live and let live. I'm not familiar with that expression. It's a James Bond. It doesn't make any sense. Okay. Of course, I'm alive. Queens on Casino Night. I am going to drop a deuce on everybody. I just want to say for the record, I did not kill anyone. Stanley was attacked by his own heart. I know where this is going. Do you? Okay. It's now time for Stump the Grobber on the Grob Scene and Shooter Express. And Cheryl, we try and keep these questions, if we can, local. Um, so today we have a White Sox question. We have a Cubs question. We have a Bulls question. Both you and Les uh, uh, appreciate your stabs at answering these. All right, we'll start with the White Sox. There have been three White Sox pitchers who have won gold gloves. Who are they? One of them's got to be uh, Paul Canerco. Les, pitchers. Mark pitchers. Oh, pitchers. Didn't Mark Burley? Burley's one. Burley, no question about that. Um, other pitchers uh, right now, I can't think of any others at this point. Well, I guess we've stumped the grabber. <laughs> <laughs> there was one who there was one pitcher, and he he won most of his Gold Gloves in, in another team's uniform. But he Jim came to Chicago. Yeah, it Jimmy Cott is correct. And there's one more. And he was a person who um, – I'm giving away a little trade secret here. He and uh, his catcher didn't get along with each other, AJ. How could nobody get – does anybody not get along with AJ? He had a great sense yeah. of humor. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's why he didn't have anybody on either side of him in the locker room. Right. <laughs> Every time I walked into the Sox clubhouse uh, – you would hear a voice screaming out the Lee Elia tirade, and who was it? It was AJ. He would be. Uh, he would know it uh, verbatim. Who was that other pitcher, David? Uh, it was Jake Peavy. Ah. Ah, a lot of people didn't get along with Jake Peavy, though. Okay, oh, I did. I did. He gave me yeah. his phone number. He came up to me. Here's my phone. Number. I thought he was great. Yeah. He, might, he might have been pulling everybody's leg, but I thought he was great. Oh. All right, other side of town. Almost the same question. Two Cub pitchers have won gold gloves. Now, I will tell you, one of them is fairly obvious. The other one didn't pitch that whole season for the Cubs, so this is a real trivia question. Obviously, Maddox was one. That's correct. He won five gold gloves, at least in a Cubs uniform. I don't know how many he won down in Atlanta, too. The other one is a real trivia question. I'll give you the year. He played on three teams that season including the Phillies and somebody else. I can't remember. And he only played 20 games with the Cubs, but he did win a gold glove, 1964. Wow. 64. Yep. That was the year they traded Lou Brock, and they got uh, uh, they ended up getting um, uh, a pitcher who was pretty much washed out, and that was Ernie Brolio, but it wasn't him, was no. it? No. I'll even give you his first name. I mean, you you know, again, this is a super trivia question. His first name is Bobby. Bobby Shantz? That is correct. Bobby oh, Shantz. It's a trivia question, as I said. He was in that, he was in that trade also for uh, Lou Brock. Was he? So he played, with the Card he, he played with the Cardinals, Phillies, and Cubs that season? Yep. Okay. All right. Four Chicago Bulls have competed in the NBA slam dunk uh, competition. Who are they? Well, we know, uh, obviously, Jordan was one of them. 
Correct. Um, one was a very short guy who, uh, you're shaking your head no. That's correct. I'm shaking my head no because it wasn't a short guy. Were you thinking it was Nate Robinson? Yeah, I was thinking it might have been him because he could uh, he could leap through the ceiling to dunk the basketball. He also get knocked out by one of those uh, YouTubers. <laughs> I could yeah. only come up with that MJ. That was, Dude, that you, was embarrassing. Uh, are you counting Zach Levine? Uh, no, because Zach Levine didn't do it with I know. the Bulls. I know. I'm just <laughs> I didn't know if it was a trick question. No. These are wearing a Bulls uniform that season. Okay. I'm going to say it was not anybody that was on a championship team, correct? Incorrect. Was it Pippen? Was it Pippen? Pippen is two. Two more. Wow. Well, Cheryl and I both had Pippen. We kind of got it at the same time. Other than that, I'm going to throw uh, throw it out. Okay. You, you both know these two other players. Is it Harper? Not Ron Harper. Okay, that's right. His knees were were just were destroyed before he hurt his knee with uh, the Clippers. Harper, uh, he was a great slam dunk guy, and then he became more more of a defensive type player and a playmaker when he was with the Bulls later on. All right, I'll give you some hints. Um, this other player was in two slam dunk competitions, and David Greenwood was was his teammate. And UCLA? Or no, I Bulls? didn't say that. I said on the Bulls. Orlando Ulrich. That is number three. Wow. And the last one was one of the all-time goofs of, that we've all dealt with over the years. Not Dennis. No, not Dennis. This guy could jump out of the gym, but... Find our test? No. <laughs> no. He could jump out of his skin. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> it was Tyrus Thomas. Oh, my gosh. Sometimes known as Virus Thomas, the guy who was traded for just to retire. You know, he, he was at the he was at the United Center a couple of years ago. Was he? Yeah, and he was, I mean, very welcoming to me. I was surprised. When I uh, had a chance to interview him at a Chicago Sky game, when I the three years I was doing Sky games, he was great, very engaging, really nice guy, and it was nice to have him aboard. I yeah. think for him, the problem was that he was a small town guy. And coming to Chicago just it rattled him. It really rattled him. He was he, he was used to being everything small and coming to Chicago was way too much. That trade that they made on draft day, I goes without saying. For Aldrich, yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I I remember one time talking to Tyrus Thomas. I don't know how the conversation came up about, you know, drugs or whatever in the NBA. And he said, Not me, not at all. And I believed him actually. And he goes, much like you, Les, he said, no alcohol has ever passed by my lips. That's the, word, the line that you've used forever. And he's, and I said, not even a beer, not even once in your life? He goes, no, it tastes like piss. Okay, well, I've never drank piss, so I couldn't tell you that. <laughs> he, he does he does a literacy program where he lives. He tries okay. to help kids read. So, I mean, he's doing something positive. I mean, he, he was he, – the guy could jump out of the gym. Yeah. And he had – some games where he showed you the potential promise that they saw in him. Unfortunately, I don't know if it was the motivation that the guy lacked or whatever. He just didn't pan out the way that they had all hoped. Yeah. Especially when you're going that high in the draft. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, I hope you had some fun with this, Cheryl. I, I know, I know we have. Thank you. I appreciate it. I love you guys. You know, you're my, my buds for life. Unfortunately for, for you, maybe. <laughs> 
No, not at all. And, and you know, I, I can only hope and, and, you know, I've been echoing this now for what, a year and four or five months. I can only hope that it goes back to the way it was before the pandemic, because even though we're doing this on Zoom and there's a purpose for this, like right now, I don't want to talk to athletes on Zoom. I want to talk to them. And I know, Cheryl, you couldn't agree with me more than, than, than anything than this. You want to get back into the clubhouses and the locker rooms. We're the conduit for the fans. And uh, it's really, really hurt the whole thing. There's a bunch of PR people that want to see this state permanently, which doesn't shock me one bit. Team owners want team owners want this to happen. Not not as much as the PR. PR people don't like doing this, but it's the owners who want it. The thing is, we can't do what we need to do. And the fans, if they're only getting the team's message, because that they're, they're using us. Remember, when we do these Zoom calls and they put them live on Facebook or they put them live on Twitter, they're using us to talk to the players and they're making the money off of it. The only way that's ever going to go away is if all, and it won't be done, but all reporters should refuse to take part and should just ignore it. But that won't happen. Yeah, easier said than done. And and honestly, I, I, I think if you questioned and polled the players, I think it'd be much more than 50 50 that the players would say, we want the reporters. And it's not all, all of them, not everybody, but I think they would want us back in the clubhouse. I think they want to get back to the way it was also from a couple of years ago. I think it depends if what the team's doing, if they're winning or losing. <laughs> That's a good point also. <laughs> but, but no, no, I think you're right. I think, I think that they, I think they, they don't like the sterile attitude with this. And the fact is everybody could go on. You have teams that allow all these people to come on zoom that never have any really reason to be on it. And they get to use the material and I just was on, uh, I, I go on the Zoom calls with the Sky because I cover the Sky too. And apparently one of the bloggers at that that was on one of the Zoom calls used this up and then ripped him, ripped James Wade, the head coach and general manager, big time on social media. And the next Zoom call that we're on, he expressed us how hurt he was by, I've never heard, you know, I haven't heard that during this whole process of dealing with Zoom. To hear a head coach who's a general manager hurt by the way the Zoom call was used and taken. I think he's going to want us back in the locker room too. All right. Knock on wood. That happens not too far down the road. Cheryl, appreciate you joining us. Les, as always, it's been fun. We'll do this again sometime. Have you back if you're willing, Cheryl, to do this again sometime soon. Anytime. Okay, great. Les, until next week, I'll talk to you. And Cheryl, thank you again. And to everybody else out there, have a great week. Hasta la vista. Hasta la vista. What do they say? Baby? Baby. (laughs) Good night. Take care.